Bibles. Um, turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. And then also page 938. Actually, if you have, you could do 938, or if you have your handout, you could just read from the handout. We're looking at um, Westminster Confession of Faith 32, section 1. Uh, This message will be about our state after death. And we'll first look at 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. For we know that if the earthly tent which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed. So that this, so so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. And then we're looking at section one of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 32. It says, The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither sleep nor which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them the souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for their full redemption of their bodies and the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places, for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. Let's pray together. We thank you, O Father, for this wonderful blessed hope uh, that we just read about of being clothed again, even after we die and go on uh, to be as made as spirits of those just men made perfect, just men, women, and children made perfect. But we do pray for that that day when we shall be reclothed again. And we ask that you would help us to understand uh, the state that you have in store for those who have passed on and for those who shall pass on um, before the return of our blessed Lord Jesus. For we ask all these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. The section one here begins by saying the bodies of men, that's men, women, and children, after death return to dust and see corruption. Now for you kids, um, 
The word corruption there is also talking about decay. Um, this should remind us of the consequences of what happens all the way back in Genesis. When we look back in Genesis 3, and I have it here in your outline. Genesis 3.19 talks about the consequences of our first parent's sin. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for dust, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So this death and decay are the consequences for all mankind except for three individuals that we know of in the Holy Scriptures. One, most people would agree, is absolutely a case for someone who's been taken up to be with the Lord, but I guess someone could interpret it differently, is Genesis 5, 24. It talks about Enoch was a man who walked with God, and then it says, and he was not, for God took him. Most people believe that he was taken to be uh, in bodily uh, form, to go body and soul, to go to be with the Lord. Uh, another clear case of someone um, is Elijah. Second Kings chapter 2, Elijah um, w- was with Elisha, and then there then appeared the great chariot of fire um, and horses of fire, and then Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. In both body and soul, he went up into heaven. Another exception is that Jesus Christ did suffer death, but it wasn't because um, he died of natural course, which some theologians wonder if Jesus was allowed not to be um, crucified, or if he didn't give himself over to be crucified, would he have died, being that he hadn't been born of ordinary generation? Most would think no. But Jesus Christ says that he laid down his life. But even though he laid down his life after he dies, um, after he had died in Acts 13, it talks about him seeing no corruption. The body of Jesus did not see corruption like every other person. So except for these three cases, Enoch, Elijah, and the Lord Jesus Christ, the billions who have died before us, the billions who have died before us have all died and are currently seeking, uh, they are currently undergoing decay or corruption. And that goes even for the most devout holy apostle and prophet. Whether you believe in, in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation or not, every one of us, the Christian and the pagan, all suffer decay. But especially for those who are called according to God's grace as Christians. That is not, death is not the end for them. It's not. Section 1 goes on to say, But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them. Um, This section, this portion of the section here, speaks against something we would call soul sleep. It's a doctrine called soul sleep. Um, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventists, um, Ellen White, wrote about soul sleep and, and was promoting this particular doctrine. Um, by the way, if you, if you read some sources, other folks talk about Jehovah's Witnesses believing in soul sleep. But their doctrine is a little different. They believe in something called annihilationism. We'll look at that in a little bit. So, but Ellen White, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventists, she wrote this about... Uh, she wrote 
concerning a particular passage that she used to support this doctrine. And it's Daniel 12.2. Daniel 12.2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So her interpretation of that was that when a person dies, they remain in the grave in a, in a state of sleep until Jesus returns again to judge the living and the dead. So it's as if you're in a, a state of non-being or unconsciousness until the return of Christ, uh, that great white throne of judgment. Um, that is, I believe, not the case. Um, the Bible uses Daniel 12, 2, and, all, and a few other passages. One that we read about pretty regularly is in 1 Corinthians 11, at the institution of the Lord's Supper. It talks about those who took of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Some have become ill and some have fallen asleep. Well, that is a figure of speech or um, you could say a metaphor for death. Everybody understands that the Bible is talking about some have died. Because it would make no sense that, oh, the, the punishment for them taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner is that they, they, they took a nap. Well, no, they died. Okay, so the Bible uses this as a metaphor. So you don't take something that the Bible uses as a metaphor and then make a doctrine out of it. But that's what um, Ellen White did along with the other Seventh-day Adventists. There are two passages that undo the notion of soul sleep. There are two passages that teach that when a soul of a believer, uh, when a believer dies, it says that his soul immediately returns to God who gave them. Now, uh, the first one is Paul in our opening text. He said, I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Another classic passage is Philippians 1, 23. In that particular passage, Paul is in prison and you you don't know what's going to happen, whether he's going to be let go or he's going to be executed. And he says he desired rather to depart and be with Christ. For Paul to die and be executed would to to be with Christ. But he said it's more needful for me, for you all, it's more needful for me, for you all, for me to continue on. And which is what God allowed for the Apostle Paul. Now, section one says that the souls of of all mankind have an immortal substance. Um, This is what um, speaks against the notion of the Jehovah's Witnesses' annihilationism. The Jehovah's Witnesses would say that an unbeliever who dies does not have an immortal substance. His soul dies or it gets annihilated but the believer gets to inherit the new heavens and the new earth so they don't believe in a annihilationism for everyone but just for the unbeliever and one of the reasons why the jehovah's witnesses do this is because the founder didn't care or the founders of the jehovah's witnesses they didn't like the notion of hell they th- they thought how could a loving god how could a loving god send people to hell now, we know that god's Loving, but God's also infinitely just. And that explains why uh, there is such thing as hell. But really, it's totally baseless. Jesus Christ talks about a place of eternal fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth, 
where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. But what in the world do they do? They just jettison all sorts of scripture because they don't like the doctrine. Right? Section 1 describes the hope of those who have faith in Christ. As it goes on, it says that the souls of the righteous, being made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. Um, a beautiful passage that I've always loved, and I, I hope that you would appreciate it from Hebrews 12, uh, 23 and following. It talks about our unshakable kingdom given through Christ. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, this passage, this key essential passage in Hebrews 12 is not talking about something that will one day come about. This is the current state for those who have died and gone to be with the Lord. Those who have died in Christ are now currently enrolled in heaven as the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to me, that's one of the greatest attractions of heaven. One of the greatest attractions of heaven is that to be made perfect and holy and no more sinful thoughts, no more sinful words, no more sinful motivations even, to be made perfect, confirmed in, in righteousness and holiness like the angels. What a, a glorious future. And again, this particular passage would be made utter nonsense if the doctrine of uh, soul sleep were true. It, it does make the doctrine of soul sleep itself nonsense. Now, regarding those Christians here on earth, and according to the confession, those Christians in glory, they are waiting for their full redemption of their bodies. And uh, Romans 8.23 says, We ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, if you think about where did you read another passage concerning this desire for the, the resurrection, the being reclothed, it was what we read earlier today. It talks about in Second um, Corinthians 5, uh, verse 2, it says, For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. In other words, we're longing not for this body, but we're longing for the resurrected body. Just as the saints in glory, being unclothed, would logically want to be clothed again, which is also uh, the desire mentioned in Romans 8.23. Section 2 closes by saying that those who are in torment in hell are destined for what I would call an intensified um, or an immense intensification of their suffering. Yes, um, Jesus gives a parable of the rich man that when he dies, he opens his, his eyes and he's in hell. And, in, and just in his spirit, 
He's thirsting, desperately thirsting for a drop of water on his tongue because he's in such torment. And he's, there's no sleep, there's no rest, just eternal torment and fire and desire for relief. But that description of hell, according to that parable, is not the worst that it, it will be. It gets far worse because instead of suffering just in soul, what will happen is that the unbeliever will be reunited soul and body and then cast into a lake of fire along with the devil and all of his minions. Revelation 20, 13 and following there in your outline says this, The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, and every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a terrible end because it's not just suffering again in soul. It's suffering body and soul in a lake of fire forever, which is so bad it's described as eternal dying in eternal second death. Section 1 concludes, Besides these two places, for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. This clearly speaks against the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory, which, in my opinion, only has support from the Apocrypha. One of the writings of Maccabees I remember reading talks about giving alms for the dead. Why we give alms for the dead? Because the, one of the writers of Maccabees thought that that would do some good for the dead. Or obviously he's not a, he's not a, 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 a proper theologian because there's no, that's a doctrine not found in Scripture. And, you know, maybe it's because um, these, some of these men were military leaders and, and historians and weren't exactly theologians. That's why the church has looked at the books of the Apocrypha as not canonical, not inspired by the Holy Scripture. Because they really serve as good references of history, of events that happen, important history, but not doctrine. I mean, we look at... Um, Book, other books, for instance, uh, we, we read books about the siege of, of uh, Israel in 70 AD, but none of us are going to look at any of those writings and say, well, that is a book that we take as doctrine. It's a book of history. And the same thing goes with First and Second Maccabees. They're history and not necessarily Scripture. They're not at all Scripture. Here's a writing from, um, here's a, a part of an article from Dr. Uh, Kruger, he says this, The fact that the Jews limited their scriptures to the Hebrew canon should not come as a surprise given that they, there, there was an established belief that inspiration of prophecy had ceased by the time of the 4th century B.C. Now, before we read on, what, the, what was that writing? Most would believe that that was the end, that was the writing of Malachi. At the end of the book of Malachi, that there was a period of, of silence, a period of silence uh, after the 4th century B.C., until Jesus Christ arrives on the scene 
and then we have the we have John the Baptist who really was a prophet of the Lord and then we have revelation of scripture being given anew during the life of Christ and and then through the holy apostles he goes on the right uh, this sentiment that holy inspiration had ceased at the fourth century um, is evident even within the Old Testament Apocrypha itself. So in other words, if you study the Apocrypha carefully, 1 Maccabees 4, 4.46 teaches that it doesn't, it's not Holy Scripture. And then he also goes on to show that there are other Jewish sources, such as Josephus, who acknowledged that the Apocrypha was not a Holy Scripture. Um, he wrote that Jerome rejected the Apocrypha as Holy Scripture as well. Well, the Roman Catholic Church, in dealing with the Reformation and the teachings of Martin Luther and other um, reformers, had to find some ammunition to fight the Reformation. So why don't we just give some ammunition for our practices of indulgences and things of that sort. Let's then say that the Apocrypha is now canonical. And that's what they very well did during the Council of Trent. You clearly can't make the Apocrypha agree with the rest of Holy Scripture. That's why we reject it. And again, as this confession says, as we read earlier, that there's no place found in all of the Holy Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, that can find any support for any other place than heaven or hell for those who depart from this life. There's only either heaven for those who embrace Jesus Christ by faith, for those who reject him, the only other possibility is hell. There's no place of an intermediate state where you can somehow burn off uh, thousands of years in suffering and then one day be a, a, a walk up and transition up to glory again. It's a figment of the imagination. Let's pray together. We thank you, our beloved Lord, that you have called us to your holy Mount Zion, even to the city of you, the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have called us upon death to join that myriad of angels, to join the assembly of the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, that we should see you, our blessed Lord, that we should see and rejoice with Jesus Christ in, in glory. And we ask, O oh Father, that you would help us to rejoice in the salvation that you have purchased for us, that you will make us as spirits, just men and women and children made perfect. But they, we do also long for that time when you will join us back again to resurrected bodies, to enjoy the glories of a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, and where Jesus Christ is that light of the new kingdom. Help us and bless us with a great assurance in these wonderful truths from your holy word. Give us your Holy Spirit to help us to believe and trust in these things, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. At this time, let's uh, turn to our closing hymn, 313 Angels from the Realms of Glory. <clears throat>